0: Well, we're going to begin by looking at Genesis chapter 17, Genesis chapter 17, and look at verse 9, Genesis 17 and verse 9, and then we'll skip over to Romans, Genesis 17:9. We'll read verses 9 through 14. Genesis 17, God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin." Now look at the next part here in verse 11. It says, and it, this is what we're focusing on, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Notice that act of circumcision is a sign. That means it tells us something, boys and girls, just like a sign on a road. When you see that red octagonal sign, you don't even have to know how to read. You know what that means, don't you? I remember Mom was at the DMV. When we moved down, we, used, we were born outside of New York City. But in 1974, we moved down to Atlanta. Mom had to take her driver's test, and she saw that red octagonal sign. They put it up on the wall and, said, and my sister was four years old. She said, that's a stop sign, Mommy. And Mom said, shh, this is my test. <laughs> so a, a sign communicates something of a reality And so notice here, it says that this shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Verse 12, and every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations, a servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. A servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh. Notice that strong language My covenant is in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people, for he has broken my covenant. So they took this very seriously here, that if that sign was not there, then you were cut off from the people of God. Look at Romans chapter 4 because Paul comments on this very thing in Romans chapter 4. Now, Paul is arguing for the doctrine of justification by faith. That's the context. Look at verse 9. Is this blessing then On the circumcised. That is, is the doctrine of justification just for people who are circumcised. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? And Paul says, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Then notice verse 11. This is the part I want you to see too. In, he says, for he, that is Abraham, he received the sign of circumcision. Now, you remember what Genesis said in chapter 17? It said what? In, in 1711, it was what? It shall be a sign of the covenant. Paul says the same thing. He, he received this, the sign of circumcision, but then he qualifies that and says in addition to it being a sign, it's not just a sign, but he says it's a seal of the righteousness of the faith which Abram had while uncircumcised so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised. That righteousness might be credited to them and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, that is, those who are Jews, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. So notice there that the Bible in Genesis 17 and Romans 4 says that circumcision is a sign and it is a seal. Now we'll talk about what that means, but there's other texts I want you to see. Look at Matthew chapter 28. Because in the New Testament, Jesus does not tell his disciples to go out into the world And make disciples and circumcise them. What does he say in verse 19, Matthew 28? He says, Instead of go out in the world and make disciples of all the nations and circumcising them, he says this Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so we see that the Lord Jesus Christ in the Great Commission says that now there's going to be a new sign for admittance into the church. And it's not going to be, going to be circumcision anymore. It's going to be baptism. And baptism is going to replace the role of circumcision in the Old Covenant. Now look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is the last of the major text here in the readings. 1 Corinthians 11, and look at verse 23 and following. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul now talks about the other sacrament, and we'll talk about why are there two sacraments and not more. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, "This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me." In the same way, he took of the cup, also after supper, saying, "This cup, now notice the language here, is the new covenant in my blood." Now remember what you know. What, what do we see? And circumcision was the sign of the covenant. Now Paul is saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often, or Jesus rather, excuse me. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then Paul goes on, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, that is, they're not eating and drinking with faith or in a godly manner or a respectful or reverent manner, They shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord, but a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat the bread and drink of the cup. And this is why we ask that our children at least have a measure of ability to examine themselves. But a man must examine himself. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. And and he goes on uh, from there. So... Let's look um, also quickly at the confession of faith at chapter 27 and just see what the Westminster divines say about it, and then we'll go on from there. Chapter 27 of the sacraments, section 1, sacraments are holy signs and seals. We saw that from Genesis 17 and Romans 4. Sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace immediately instituted by God to represent Christ. And notice that that it says immediately instituted by God, Okay, that that this is something that Christ himself told us to do here. That's one of the distinguishing marks between the Protestant view, for example, of sacraments and the Roman Catholic, which they have an additional five sacraments uh, to the two that we believe. And part of that is because They include things that weren't necessarily immediately instituted by God or by Christ. So they have to be immediately instituted by God to represent Christ and His benefits and to confirm our interest in Him, as also to put a visible difference between those that belong unto the church and the rest of the world, and solemnly to engage them in the service of God in Christ according to His Word. Hang in there. I know there's a lot of reading. There is in every sacrament a spiritual relation or a sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified whence it comes to pass that the names and the effects of the one are attributed to the other. That's why, for example, the Scripture says in the New Testament, if you've ever wondered why it is that the New Testament says now uh, uh, that baptism saves you. And you say, well, Pastor, I, I didn't think we were saved by baptism well, that's what this sec- second section is talking about here, that there's a spiritual relationship, a sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified. That is, they're using, it's just a shorthand way of speaking. It's Christ who saves. That's what the New Testament teaches. But what is baptism? Baptism represents the work of Christ. So when, it, when the Bible says baptism now saves you, they're not talking about baptismal regeneration. They're just using the sacramental language. They're using that sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified. Just like you drive up to that red octagonal sign and it means stop, right? There's a relationship between the stop sign and stopping. And and there better be. (laughs) Your pastor once got pulled over many years ago because he did a California roll stop. You know what those are, right? Right? kids california roll stop where it's more like a yield than a full stop well a policeman saw me do it once and he said pull over there's a relationship between the sign and the thing you're supposed to be doing section three and he did it right in front of lee tracy's house too man that, see, one thing to get pulled over and then to get pulled over in front of one of your congregants houses that is even worse The grace which is exhibited in or by the sacraments rightly used is not conferred by any power in them. It's not, not in the sacrament itself. Okay, Nothing magical about the water, nothing magical about the bread or the wine. Neither doth the efficacy of a sacrament depend upon the piety or the intention of him that doth administer it, but upon the work of the Spirit and the word of institution which contains together with a precept authorizing the use thereof, a promise of benefit to worthy receivers. So it's not based upon the piety, the holiness of the minister. You don't have to worry, you know, is my, does my baptism really count? Because later I found out that that, that guy who baptized me, you know, um, isn't walking with the Lord anymore. Do, doesn't matter. Number four, there be only two sacraments ordained by Christ our Lord in the gospel, that is to say, baptism and the supper of the Lord, neither of which may be dispensed by any, but by a minister of the word lawfully ordained. And then finally, the sacraments of the Old Testament in regard of the spiritual things thereby signified and exhibited were for substance the same with those of the new. And that's simply just saying that everything that was signified in circumcision is now signified in baptism. And everything that was represented by the Passover in the Old Testament is yes and amen and more in the New Testament with the Lord's Supper. Now, I know that's a lot of reading, and I do apologize for that. I know it's hard on the attention span, but uh, there, there is the, a lot here to cover. Now, today, most of our evangelical friends are all about Uh, the preaching of the word and prayer. They they believe these things to be a great means of grace. Where we may differ with a lot of our fellow evangelical brethren are on some of the things we're about to talk about over these next few Sundays. And what we would add to word and prayer uh, is this idea of the importance of the sacraments. We believe that the sacraments are a mean, an important means of grace for several reasons. Now, one of the things, one of the geniuses, I think, of the Reformed faith is they take the biblical data and I think they try to really navigate through some difficulties and really kind of drive us through the middle, I think, of the road of the Scriptures. Um, David Everett, in the elders' prayer meeting, was just talking about how we can err to the right and we can err to the left. And and I think one of the, the benefits of the Reformed faith when it comes to the sacraments is that they, they they the Reformers really, I think, try to take the data of the sacrament and really try to avoid the extremes. Now, what do I mean by this? On one side, you have those that follow... Um, Zwingli. Zwingli, a godly man, great man, boys and girls. Uh, he is to be commended in a lot of ways. He was a reformer who lived in Switzerland, not too far from where John Calvin ministered. But Zwingli believed that the Lord's Supper and baptism, they were but mere signs. They were signs, but they didn't convey grace and blessing. On the other hand, you had the Roman Catholic Church and the Roman Catholic Church had a view uh, of the sacraments whereby you could receive baptism or the Mass and um, that grace is conferred in a term that they call ex operare operato, fancy Latin term meaning simply here that just out of the act of taking from that sacrament, that is, the the grace is so conferred within the sacrament itself that anybody who partakes of this receives the grace of God. Now, what the Reformers tried to do was they tried to say, yes, Zwingli, it is a sign. And yes, Roman Catholic Church, grace is involved in taking of these signs. But what they did was they they steered this middle path, and they said it is both a sign, but it is also a means of grace. But the grace is conferred through faith. That is, it doesn't just operate through the sacramental element itself, but it operates upon the faith of the one receiving the sacrament Or in the case of an infant in baptism, it is the faith of the parent who confesses that their child is a sinner in the need of the grace. But that when that child comes to a particular age of maturity, that they too must confess their dependence upon Jesus Christ to receive the grace of God. And that the grace conferred is not always tied to the very moment that the ordinance is applied. And I think that this was a very wise reading of Scripture on the part of many of the Reformers here. So many of our fellow evangelicals would agree with word and prayer as a means of grace, but many of them would pull up short when you added the word and the importance and the efficacy of the sacraments. Some do not even like the term, and maybe even some within the Reformed faith uh, are not always particularly comfortable with the term. I think one of the reasons there is some discomfort with the terminology of sacrament is because it is not a word that is derived from the Scriptures themselves. It is a theological term, but you have to realize that sometimes we have to use words that are extra-biblical to teach biblical truth. That is, for example, the word Trinity is not found in the Bible, but surely we would all agree the concept and the truth of the triune God is found in the Bible. So, so it is, we would argue, with the word sacrament. Now, what is a sacrament? Well, a sacrament, let me read you from uh, Herman Bovink. I'll rely on Bovink a good bit tonight. Bavinck, in his Systematic Theology, says this. He says, Theology employs many terms that do not occur in Scripture and that have acquired technical meaning in their own sphere. If theology had to refrain from using such terms, it would have to cease all scientific labor and all preaching and exegesis of God's Word. Indeed, even the translation of Scripture would be impermissible. So that there are words that we have to use to teach biblical truth sometimes that may not be found in the text itself. There's no Greek word um, that we translate sacrament. Now, there is a close connection. I'll get to that in a moment. But what is a sacrament? The Shorter Catechism gives this as the definition. A sacrament is a holy or unholy ordinance instituted by Christ wherein by sensible signs, Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are represented, sealed, and applied to believers. So it is a sign and it is a seal of the benefits of what Jesus Christ has done in his life, death, and resurrection for us. It signifies the work of Christ to us, but it also confers to us our own personal interest in the work of Christ to us. So let's talk here a little bit about the sign and the seal. The sign and the seal. As I said, the sign, you can think of signs on the road, boys and girls, they convey truth to you. So the bread and the wine convey to us the truth of Jesus' death on the cross. The water of baptism conveys the truth. It's a sign of the washing that Christ does within us by His work that He did on the cross. That is, by the shedding of His blood, we are washed, just as the water being poured out on the head or whether the person, if they're a Baptist, is immersed. We'll talk about baptism in a week or two here. Uh, we accept you know, all forms of baptism, sprinkling, pouring, immersion, but I'll tell you why we believe what we do. But as long as water and the Trinity are applied... Uh, then we receive that as a true baptism. Even if th- it is immersion, it's the sign of washing uh, there. And, and so we are to see the work of Christ in the sacraments. Now, as I said, I think a week ago, the sacraments are not to point to us primarily. Here again, this is where we and some of our evangelical friends Part ways that often in some churches, when, for example, baptism uh, is observed, it often is, look at my response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am doing this in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. But baptism and the Lord's Supper are chiefly not about our response to Christ. They're about Christ. And what he does for believers. So the sacrament uh, is a sign of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, and it is a seal in that it is, if you think of a seal, much. Now, boys and girls, I'm not talking about the animal that lives up in the Arctic, okay? We're talking about a, a if you go in and Maybe your mom or dad, somewhere on their office wall, has their high school or college diploma. Or maybe you got a certificate of participation in soccer or something like that, and they gave you that certificate. And that certificate had a seal. Uh, And it just says, yes, you really participated in this event. And there it's stamped and it's conferred upon you. And you can hang it on your wall and you know that. So uh, like a diploma, it confers all the rights and privileges. I don't know what those rights and privileges are of uh, being an alumnus, but uh, yeah, opportunity to give more money. And, uh, but you know, it says that you now, you truly have finished all the work that our school requires of you to finish. And you, you are conferred this degree. And it, the, the seal is usually like in the lower right or left-hand corner of that diploma there. And so it is saying that the work of Christ is conferred to you. You have all the rights and privileges and benefits of being the child of God in the sacrament. Bavink uh, says that the seal confirms God's trustworthiness. They do not only bring the invisible reality to mind, but confirm and validate it. Um, the sign is taken from things visible, water, bread, wine, but they depict by analogy the truths that are invisible and spiritual. That is, there are truths that are invisible to the naked eye, but they are visibly displayed in the sacrament. They are sealed to us. Again, Herman Boving says the sacrament does not impart one benefit that is not also received, listen to this, from the Word of God. By faith alone. That is, the content of the sacrament is identical to the content of the preached word. The word and the sacrament contain the same mediator, Jesus Christ. The word and the sacrament preach the same covenant, the same benefits, the same salvation, the same fellowship with God. Indeed, that is why in the Reformed tradition we link the sacrament so closely to the preaching of the Word. That's why we don't believe that you should be doing private sacramental observances in your home. That we shouldn't even do it in a public setting where just two. Sometimes people say, oh, you know, it would just be so wonderful, you know, pastor, if the first act of our marriage was that we took communion together. Well, Sentimentally, that might be very nice. But there's a problem. This isn't a meal to be observed by two people with a bunch of others watching. It's a sacramental meal for the whole of the church to be partaking in together under the preaching of the word. This is why we, we don't, you know, dads uh, are not supposed to be baptizing their kids uh, at home. This is why, we, you know, we don't observe the Lord's. Savior. Supper at our own dinner table here Um, because it is connected so closely to the preached word that it is to be observed publicly in the body of the church uh, because it is a corporate act of worship. Uh, But like the word, the sacrament is given to strengthen your faith. Just as preaching is given to build up your faith, the sacrament is given to build up Your faith. There is a relationship or a connection between the sign and the thing that is signified there. So that the Reformed Church holds to what is called spiritual communication. That is, since the essence of grace is spiritual, um, whereas, versus the Roman Catholic view, where the grace is conferred in in the sacrament itself. And received by the act performed. The Reformed view believes that grace is communicated only when faith is exercised. So faith must always be operative. To put it in the words of the New Testament, that without faith it is impossible to please the Lord. Chad Van Dixhorn, a commentator on the Confession of Faith, he got a great little book if you want a book that helps you work your way through the Westminster Confession of Faith. He says there are four functions of the sacraments. Page 359 of his book, four functions of the sacraments. Number one, it represents Jesus Christ and His benefits. We talked about that. Represents Jesus Christ and His benefits to us. Number two, it confirms your interest in Christ. It confirms your own interest in Christ. There's something very personal about holding the bread and the wine. Um, it is something very personal about Christ coming to you and saying, look, here is the evidence of my love for you. Here is, here is the very sign of the covenant between me and you. And that you have a very personal, intimate interest in what Christ is communicating to you here. Christ is the head of the act of receiving the sacrament. Yes, it is the minister who officiates, uh, but it is Christ who is there fellowshipping with you in that sacrament. So it confirms your own personal interest in the Lord Jesus Christ. Number three. It puts a visible difference between the church and the world. Now, we read this when we read through the confession here. It puts a visible difference between the church and the world. So that the, the sacraments, uh, baptism, um, you know, if you go to a Lutheran church, very interesting. They, we have the baptismal font up here at the front where you can see it. And we have it under the pulpit. Okay, We have that under the pulpit intentionally signifying that the sacraments are under the word. But if you go to a Lutheran church, and I'm not saying this is bad. I think it's kind of interesting what they do. They take the font and they put it, if you will, in front of that doorway there behind you. And the reason they do that is to signify um, something that Chad Van Dixhorn is, is communicating in this third function of the sacraments. That is, it puts a visible difference between the church and the world. That is, you come into the church by way of baptism. You come into the body of Christ by way of your baptism, whether you come as an adult in baptism or whether you come as an infant in baptism. We, so that every Lutheran, every Sunday, has to walk past the font before they take their seat in the pew. They are reminded, and often if you go to a Lutheran church, Um, it it often is in Latin, but it essentially says, I am baptized. It's a quote from Martin Luther. Luther, in order to encourage himself, would remind himself of our baptism. And I think that's something that a lot of evangelicals have lost, um, this idea. You know, we're so, I think sometimes reactionary to the Roman Catholic view that I'm not, you know, that we want to insist, I'm not saved by my baptism, I'm not saved by my baptism. I mean, how many times do you have to, even in Reformed churches, you know, see the minister, the first thing out of his mouth is, we're not saved by our baptism. Okay, but it almost makes baptism nothing then. In the, especially when the Bible says you are saved by your baptism. <laughs> okay, that is the language of the Bible. You know, now I'm not, again, saying that by baptism, we are, we are at that moment regenerated. But there, there is a, a point here that there, there this sign of baptism uh, separates us unto God. It, it separates us unto each other. It separates us from the world. And, and, and now we belong to God. Number four, um, it's solemnly, the sacraments, Van Dixhorn says, number four, the sacraments solemnly engage us to serve Christ. So when we, for example, we take the Lord's Supper, in many ways we're renewing the covenant with the Lord. It's a covenant renewal ceremony. When we come and we take of the table of the Lord, we are recommitting, we're rededicating ourselves to Christ at that moment. Now... um, Having said that, let's talk a little bit about the history of sacraments in the church. Um, How did we get the word sacrament? The word sacrament is a Latin word, uh, but it it is a Latin word for a Greek word that is in the New Testament. I said, you know, we don't get it directly from the Scriptures, but we do use the Latin word of the Greek word, which is in the New Testament. Now, the Greek word is mysterion, mysterion. Uh, If I transliterate that for you, that'd be M-U-S-T-E-R-I-O-N, mysterion. You probably can hear the English word mystery in it, okay? I'm not always certain that that English derivative is helpful in this context, but let me try to explain the connection. The Greek word mysterion um, later began to take on the connotation of mysterious and incomprehensible, which I don't think is always helpful, to tell you the truth. But the mystery, remember the Paul speaks of the gospel as a, a the mystery of the gospel. now what he's not meaning is there that it that somehow it's incomprehensible. it's meaning that there was this this, if you will, mystery long, for long ages past about the work that God would do in Christ. But now that 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 mystery has been revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the fullness of time, God came in the form of his Son to save us from our sins. Now, um, with that Greek word, it got imported, if you will, over to the sacrament. I think this is Bavink here. Because there was some vagueness in the definition of sacrament, not surprisingly, that lack of clarity and definition caused a number of, quote-unquote, sacraments to rise over time in the church. Various leading theologians and churchmen were not always agreeing on the number of sacraments. So let me give you a few church history examples. So, for example, uh, a, a Christian theologian named Abelard believed that there were five sacraments Um, Hugo, St. Victor, took one extreme. He believed that there were 30 sacraments. Um, Augustine, as great as Augustine was, believed that the Nicene Creed and the Lord's Prayer to be sacraments. Uh, Bernard of Clairvaux, we sing some of his hymns today in the hymnal. He believed that there were nine. Uh, Baptism, foot washing, confirmation, the Eucharist, confession, extreme unction, holy orders, investiture, and marriage. Uh, But, well, let me say, he cites nine. He never tells us how many there are, he thinks. But historians could only find nine that he cited. Uh, Peter Lombard was the first to cite that seven uh, were the sacraments, and that, of course, is what the Roman church uh, eventually would adopt. Now... um, the definition of the word sacrament seems to determine the number of sacraments according to the theologian or counsel. The relationship between the physical and the spiritual remain undefined. But here's what I want you to hear. For all that confusion over the centuries, everybody's list had the same two. Everybody's list had baptism. Everybody's list had the Lord's Supper. Okay. So whatever disagreements there were about other things, the whole of the church unanimously voted for those two. And Augustine made it clear that the sacraments only gain their efficacy from the preached word. Augustine would say, quote, Take away the word, and the water is neither more nor less. The word is added to the element, and its result is the sacrament. Now, if you have Roman Catholic friends, here are the seven sacraments that they believe. Number one is baptism. And you can almost see this as a, a progression through one's life in some sense. So first, as an infant, you're baptized. Baptism, number one. Number two, confirmation. It's when you, you know, join the church as a professing member. They believe that's a sacrament. Number three, penance. Uh, where you begin the system of repenting of sins, confessional and all that. Number four, matrimony, getting married. Number five, the mass. Number six, was, would not be for everybody, but ordination. And then number seven, extreme unction, which is the anointing of the body with oil. Uh, various parts of the body are anointed by the priest as somebody is sick, very sick and dying. Uh, If you ever watch any World War II films, you'll notice that whenever somebody is, you know, mortally wounded on the battlefield, you know, you'll see a priest running over to him and, you know, um, crossing himself and putting oil on the soldier. The soldier could receive a last unction uh, before he died uh, on the battlefield. That's what's going on in, in those movies if you ever watch them. But Jesus Christ did not institute any sacraments other than these two, the Lord's Supper and Baptism. That is, boys and girls, what did Jesus institute for us to continue on? Well, he told us in the Great Commission that we should go and make disciples and baptize them. And number two, he told us about the Lord's Supper. He gave us this as something that was to be repeated. Um, So Christ gave us these two personally. Um, Some people say, well, didn't Christ wash his disciples' feet? Why wouldn't that be a sacrament? Because I think it, it doesn't necessarily point directly to the cross itself, okay? Jesus did this as a demonstration of servanthood in the church, and that we should not in a literal sense, but a figurative sense, be washing one another's feet by serving one another, seeking to take the least place at the table, if you will. Now, as I said, it is Jesus Christ himself who governs and administers the word and the sacrament. Grace is not something that we should think of as something material to be imparted. That is, you can't measure grace. Um, It is is the favor and the fellowship of God, says Bavink. What is grace? Grace is the favor and the fellowship of God. And that is what is conferred by God's grace to the hearts of believers through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, through the sacrament. It is Christ who is, if you will, the one who is at the head of the table, Uh, But Christ uses the ministry of the Spirit through the Word and the visible Word to apply grace, that is, favor and fellowship of God to our lives. Christ confers grace to the hearts of believers through the ministry of the Spirit. Yet, while God's action in the sacrament is primary, the sacrament also is a means for us as believers to confess our faith and our love for Christ. So there is this communion, or this fellowship, this koinonia, Paul calls it. In this cup is the communion of the Lord, whereby not only are we recipients of grace from Christ, but we also confirm our own love for Him. God confers to us in the the sacraments that He is our God, and a God unto our children. They are intended to strengthen your faith. Yet believers confess their faith and their obedience and their love, their communion with Christ and also with each other. That's why things in Corinth were such a mess and why God was judging them so severely at the Lord's table this because they, there was so much schism in the church that and everybody was just doing their own thing. They were taking the bread, and they were taking the wine, and they were drinking, and they weren't waiting on others, and they were just observing it, and the place was just a mess and chaos. And so God brought a judgment against them because of that. This is a covenantal meal at the Lord's table. That's why we don't take private communion. We are to wait for one another. We are to take and eat together uh, and to pledge ourselves mutually to each other and ourselves to Christ it also is a means by which God assures us that we are His children. Uh, we testify that we are His people. And as I said a moment ago, that the observance of the sacrament is an act of covenantal re- renewal. That is, it's, a, it's an ongoing uh, vow of renewal, if you will, whereby we continually pledge ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we're going to talk about the sacraments over these next two weeks uh, as we specifically talk about baptism and talk about the Lord's Supper. We'll stop here uh, for now. Let's close it.